Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by Diamond Hill's Scott Williams, and we'll be discussing his recent industry perspectives piece, reviewing the increased mergers and acquisitions activity in the technology sector. You can find Scott's industry perspectives piece at www.diamond-hill.com. Scott has been with Diamond Hill since 2018, covering software and information technology services. Prior to joining Diamond Hill, Scott worked at Stonehenge Partners and GBQ Consulting. Scott is a graduate of the Ohio State University here in Columbus, Ohio, and is both a certified public accountant and a charter holder of the Charter Financial Analyst Institute. Since a large number of us are still working from home, I ask for your patience with any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott Williams. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Glad you were able to join me to discuss your industry perspectives titled Technology M&A, Can This Buying Frenzy Continue? You provide some fascinating statistics in your piece regarding the pace of M&A in the technology space, and I'll go through some of those for the listeners. 244 acquisitions of technology service businesses valued at $1 billion or greater between 2016 and 2020 compared to the previous 20 years where we saw 305 acquisitions. So let's start off with talking about some of the reasoning around the meteoric rise in activity over the past five years. Yeah, so the, the trend is certainly very notable. Um, I, I think it's worth saying that I think it's, it's difficult to generalize, uh, you know, as there are many, many deals that in, in so many different niches and sub-segments within technology services you know, each kind of having different motivating factors or things that drive transaction activity, um, kind of at a at, at both the micro and macro levels. Um, however, I believe that there are some common themes at play. You know, driving the overall rise in technology services that that I point out in the piece. You know, first and foremost, I think you're seeing just general consolidation uh, of the market. You know, you've got successful technology service firms over the last. You know, call it 10 to 20 years, kind of the Microsofts and Salesforces of the world, you know, that have continued to attract customers, you know, have superior scale and distribution and really generate strong cash flows. Um, you, you know, the overall strength of these businesses has put them in a, in a pretty favorable financial position to acquire smaller businesses, you know, with compelling products and offerings, but maybe lack, lack the scale or distribution capabilities in order to compete effectively. Um, kind of in addition to that, in addition to having the resources and the strength, you know, I think some of the larger firms are generally motivated in many instances by, you know, just the general desire to broaden their product suite, um, expand into new markets or, or respond to a shifting competitive landscape. You know, secondarily, I, I would say that, you know, market, the market today puts a high, high value on growth. Some of these acquisitions, I would say cynically, may be simply buying growth for, for some of their larger, larger acquirers as well. Uh, and, and then relatedly, you know, various trends have been at play the last two decades or so that have increased the number of smaller technology service firms in the market uh, that ultimately make for interesting acquisition targets. And I would say, you know, two, two things in particular, you've just got the general growth of, of venture capital flowing into areas like, like software and IT services that have helped seed businesses and and develop new use cases. 
uh, across the, the the market. And then concurrently with that, I think in general startup costs um, for for some of these businesses have come down over time. And specifically, I'll point to just the general build out and adoption of the public cloud, kind of allowing companies to to spin up uh, various software pretty quickly and get to get to market uh, much quicker than before. And just the general pace of, of innovation has led to uh, things like the, the, you know, the increased adoption of open source software, which has essentially made you know, certain types of, of building block software widely available to help you know, smaller companies scale and and with less capital. So I guess to summarize that that answer, you know, I think you're seeing kind of larger technology service companies continue to gain strength and looking for new attractive offerings. At the same time, there are several attractive targets in the market with compelling products. Um, and, and then maybe lastly, and I'll button up this answer, you know, I think over the last year, you've, you've heard a lot of technology service companies uh, talk about accelerating digital transformation plans and strategies. Uh, with the pandemic kind of being a catalyst for that. Uh, certainly the pandemic seems to have changed uh, our, our lives and, and working habits as consumers. And so I think you're seeing technology firms, you know, being more acquisitive in certain areas to try and capitalize on, you know, potential paradigm shifts. Um, you know, for example, a, per, a more permanently distributed workforce um, going forward. So we've talked about uh, M&A and, and growing business. Let's shift to another option companies have for increasing their business and revenue, which is organic growth and development. So while the benefits of developing technology in-house are, are quite apparent, the challenges can be daunting. And so is there a correlation between the challenges associated with developing technology or products in-house and the rise that we've just been discussing in M&A activity? I definitely think there is some correlation there. Um, so I guess I'll give a couple of thoughts on maybe why that is. You know, first I would say that many sub-markets across technology, across the technology services umbrella, uh, are characterized by pre-material switching costs. Uh, so naturally, as, as new products and use cases attach to customers, and uh, and buying habits form, um, th those relationships become very valuable over time and are pretty difficult to break up. And so that sort of dynamic often makes it easier uh, for, for larger incumbents with, with te within technology services to just acquire smaller, potentially subscale businesses with, uh, with established customer relationships and, and products, uh, you know, rather than spending resources organically in, in a somewhat potentially inefficient manner. Um, so kind of circling back to what I said earlier, you know, as technology service industry, as the technology service industry um, continues to grow and evolve and, uh, and more companies enter due to the, the tailwinds that I just mentioned, you know, I, I think the proposition seems to be skewing more toward buy uh, as opposed to build in, in a lot of instances. And then second, I think it's generally hard or, or pretty difficult for, for larger, highly profitable tech companies to play both, both sides of the fence here. And, and what I mean by that is that there aren't many out there uh, known for both their superior innovation chops, as well as having kind of best in class margins. Um, not always, but, but usually there is um, some sort of a trade-off there. Um, innovation requires investing in, in things like software development and, and new customer relationships. Which, which often translates to, to lower margins today in hopes of a payoff in the future. 
And, and the shareholders of highly profitable tech firms uh, usually grow accustomed to, to lofty margins over time and, and aren't thrilled when, when margins come down. Uh, so this can potentially be a short-sighted view and damaging to the business in the future, but, but you see it more often than you might think. Um, so, so I think ultimately uh, the, the acquisition path is increasingly the easier path for, for large incumbent to, to sell to their, their respective shareholder bases, um, often in lieu of maybe making you know, organic investments internally. So that's an interesting point that you're making that as the companies are, are larger, you know, it's much more of a focus on acquiring than developing. Does that have anything to do with, um, you know, the culture as a, as a firm goes from startup to giant entity, the corporate feel or environment that's developed there? Does that kind of squash some of that innovation that got the company going in the first place? And so therefore, you know, you're looking for, uh, the people that are working out of their garage or, or whatever it may be, trying to develop something new and you're better off just going out and buying them than trying to cultivate that experience or that environment in you know, a, a public firm at this point. So, so that's a very astute point. And, and I think there is some truth to that. I, I think it, there's a natural tendency within technology services that as companies continue to grow, they get complacent. Um, their, their employees get complacent with their increasing competitive strength. They maybe grow a bit more worried about maintaining market share as opposed to, to growing market share and, and kind of going from, from uh, you know, disruptor to, to incumbent. I think there is uh, a path there where, you know, the culture, um, it, it, it potentially changes within an organization as they get bigger, as their products mature, as I said, they gain market share. So definitely culture is a big part of it. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's pretty difficult as you see companies grow and expand uh, to, to kind of maintain that culture of innovation. And um, there, there's a, a small set of companies that I think have that capability, but I think more often than not, you're right, on, you're right there with that point that uh, it's pretty challenging to uh, kind of balance that as you grow and, and a big part of that's culture. I'd like to take a deeper dive into one of the deals that's come about in the past couple of years uh, that you mentioned in your piece. Salesforce acquired Slack Technologies last year in a bid to continue expanding their suite of client relationship management tools. Can you walk us through this deal and the significance it has to the overall market? Salesforce is obviously best known for being kind of the leading CRM software vendor over the last 20 years or so. Um, over the last five years, uh, the company has made M&A kind of a key part of its, its capital allocation strategy to, to really expand beyond the, the CRM market and kind of build out a suite of quote-unquote best-of-breed uh, software offerings um, with, with Slack kind of being the, the, uh, the, the poster child for this sort of activity that's, that's taken place over the last five years by Salesforce. Um, Slack is a pretty ubiquitous uh, uh, offering now, um, kind of known for its, its workforce collaboration product that allows millions of users uh, to connect with, within, uh, within organizations as well as uh, with others outside of a company. Uh, you know, Slack has a pretty loyal following and has grown nicely since going public, but the company has been consistently weighed down by, by the risk of, of Microsoft Teams you know, preventing them from, from growing market share with more enterprise customers, 
which uh, generally tend to be pretty lucrative and are something that a lot of software companies would like to, to go after and, uh, and win over time. Overall though, you know, I view Slack as a, a very unique network type asset that is, is likely pretty difficult to replicate by almost anyone. So I can see why Salesforce would be attracted in that particular business. Um, in terms of what the integration will look like after the deal closes, uh, Salesforce hasn't disclosed much yet. Um, that, is, that is super tangible with how that, that might look. Given the strength of Slack's brand, uh, it's likely that Salesforce will keep it independent for a period of time and use its distribution clout to push Slack into you know, Salesforce's existing customer base. You know, which is a fairly low-hanging fruit for a deal like this, and and pretty common um, uh, as the first move uh, among these sorts of sorts of kind of mega deals with uh, mega cap software companies. Uh, longer term, you know, I acknowledge that uh, I'm largely speculating here, but I think you might see some sort of an integration where Slack kind of becomes the uh, the the user interface and or the the quote unquote operating system for all of the sales and marketing data uh, that Salesforce has. It's kind of the system of record with, with its customers. You know, Slack could also help Salesforce kind of weave together the disparate uh, software acquisitions that, that Salesforce, Salesforce has made uh, on a single screen that is, you know, most convenient and workable for Salesforce users. Ultimately, though, uh, you know, to be determined there. Um, and then lastly, just in terms of significance to the market, Salesforce is charging hard to become a highly diversified application software vendor that can go to, to can go toe to toe uh, with a company like Microsoft. I view Microsoft favorably in that matchup, but uh, it will definitely be interesting to see how you know the the competitive dynamic unfolds kind of going forward. So Scott, in preparing for this, you and I have talked quite a bit about, um, we talked about Salesforce acquiring Slack. And then one of the things that you and I talked about was, you know, comparing and contrasting the Slack Salesforce deal with another deal that you talked about in your piece, which is the Red Hat acquisition by IBM in 2019. If you could, for the listeners, share a little bit about how those deals are, are different and what you think the implications are for IBM. Good question and good compare and contrast there between the, the Slack Salesforce deal and, and IBM and Red Hat. Um, so I think for starters, you know, I would say that the Slack acquisition was made from a position of strength by, by Salesforce. You know, the Red Hat acquisition has been more from a position of weakness potentially for, for IBM. Um, IBM has a long history, but but notably has struggled to grow its its software business and you know, come under, you know, a few challenges there as structural issues like the shift to the public cloud and, and heightened competition uh, have been difficult to overcome for IBM. Um, IBM also, uh, you know, made the ill-fated decision to, to focus more on profitability at the start of the decade, uh, when in retrospect, um, it, it probably should have focused more on investing really to decouple from its, its legacy on-premise software suite that it um, that, that's really profitable, but uh, is an area that's not really growing um, within IBM or in kind of the market overall. Uh, you know, Red Hat's a, it's a growing business um, with some pretty intriguing offerings that um, I guess I emphasize could give the company uh, more exposure to fast growing subsegments of the software market. But I think the jury is still still out there 
on how much of a needle mover Red Hat really is for IBM's software business over time. I think the best scenario for, for IBM is that the Red Hat acquisition gives IBM you know, an opportunity to become more relevant over the next five years or so as software workloads continue to shift to the public cloud where IBM is viewed in this kind of idealistic scenario as sort of a neutral intermediary between in customers um, and, and the big three cloud vendors. And, and I think that that outcome feels like, uh, unfortunately, um, it has a fairly low probability of unfolding at this time. But um, again, um, we're still fairly early into that acquisition and uh, it could, could alter the landscape if things go well. So we're certainly monitoring it um, from that standpoint. So Scott, since the inception of this podcast, we've talked to a variety of analysts and portfolio managers here at Diamond Hill. And each time that we do, we tend to talk about the importance of a long-term view and calculating our estimate of intrinsic value. How disruptive is something like a merger or acquisition in calculating intrinsic value? And do you go back to the drawing board and start over or can it be integrated into your estimate? I guess I'll preface uh, this answer by, you know, obviously mentioning that Diamond Hill's investment process involves a lot of deep and thorough research and a really strong understanding of a company, you know, its, its products and services, um, competitive positioning, and really the long-term trajectory of the business and the industry. So, you know, the end goal of all that work is to ultimately estimate, you know, what sort of cumulative earnings generation, you know, might be reasonable for many years into the future. Certainly acquisitions can be disruptive and um, potentially time-consuming when, when updating our estimates of intrinsic value. We want to have a solid understanding of what the integration looks like uh, fundamentally, uh, which, which might include things like potential revenue or cost synergies, uh, as well as how it might impact less tangible things like the culture and general market perception um, uh, of both the acquirer and the acquiree after the deal is closed. Um, so we're, we're kind of factoring those things in when we're kind of going through an analysis post-acquisition. Um, within technology services, I would say that as acquisitions have gotten larger and in some cases more eclectic, um, as I kind of mentioned in the piece, um, I think the range of investment outcomes feels like it has gotten wider naturally. So we're, we're certainly cautious whenever we come across an acquisition that's large that may be a bit unique. We're trying to understand kind of what it means for our intrinsic value estimates. That said, I, I do think that the investment case for some of these deals within technology services are, are more nuanced than, than probably ever before uh, with, with payoffs, you know, potentially being longer into the future and less, less clear, um, but nevertheless more important to the long-term sustainable success of, of the acquirer's businesses. As an example, you know, GitHub, I mentioned in the piece, they were acquired by Microsoft. Um, GitHub is a network-based business where, where software developers um, virtually meet to share and store um, software code. Uh, and, you know, on the surface, that, that business didn't really seem like it would be a perfect fit with a Microsoft initially. But over time, you know, GitHub should help Microsoft gain increasing mindshare with that uh, software developer um, network, which, uh, you know, hopefully leads to them buying other things from, from Microsoft in the future. 
So in that case, you know, you almost view GitHub as an investment in the Microsoft brand and kind of future customer acquisition for, for, for Microsoft. So, so maybe just to kind of wrap there, you know, as part of our investment process at Diamond Dill, we're always trying to figure out a reasonable range of, of uh, fundamental expectations for our investments. When acquisitions enter the equation, you know, that can definitely be disruptive um, and, and at times may require some out of the box thinking. But our deep research process uh, should position us to be able to think through as many scenarios as possible, handicap, you know, which are the most likely to occur, and then ultimately make good investment decisions. Scott, thanks so much for joining me today. Really appreciate you taking some time to talk with me about your industry perspectives piece, which can be found at www.diamond-hill.com. Wishing you and your family nothing but the best and hope to have you on the podcast again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.